Welcome to Locally Sourced Joey, where I chat with good people doing great things. Today's guest is friend of the podcast, Craig Leaner, making his second appearance to chat about his new book, All Roads Lead to Lawrence. We're talking writing processes, book marketing, general hoops, because of course we're huge basketball fans and we always got to chat a little hoops every time we talk. Craig has real actionable tips that anyone interested in writing a book should uh, should pay attention to, but don't just take my word for it. I'll let him talk himself. So let's hop on in to this episode with Craig Leaner. Congratulations, second book, All Roads Lead to Lawrence. Yeah, boy, who knew? You know, um, <laughs> when I wrote the first one, I had 193 people on the acknowledgments page uh, because I didn't know I'd ever do it again. I want to make sure I had everybody covered. <laughs> So what was the, the process like with, with the second one? Did you know when you, uh, I mean, it sounds like no, if you're, if you're doing the acknowledgements uh, for that many people, but when, when did you know that, hey, there's enough here for a second book? Well, my editor told me at the time she read the first one that uh, there was room for a sequel. And so during the editorial process, we left a couple of doors ajar in the final chapter to make some room for that. I didn't really have a story, but I knew that uh, there was a room to come up with one. So that's where I was. I like it. And something that I enjoy, I think, about your writing is that the chapters uh, are very short and, you know, to the point. There's not a lot of uh, a fluff thrown in there, um, which I think makes it easier to read because it's like, Oh wow! I've been I've been reading for an hour and I've already knocked out you know twenty chapters. Um, was that something that you intentionally tried, or did it just kind of work out that way? That was a conscious decision. Uh, on the first one, uh, this was never about basketball. I had forty-two chapters, uh, and then on the second book, I decided to write shorter chapters to propel the reader, and so uh, I ended up with seventy-two chapters. Uh, even though the book is about a thousand words shorter than the first one. I added another about 45 or 50 pages uh, because of what the, the design issues that were brought up by short chapters that may have ended uh, maybe halfway onto a page. Last time we chatted, uh, you kind of had that eureka moment of when you know you were you were wondering how you were going to finish. This was never about basketball, uh, and I'm not going to spoil it for people who haven't listened to the podcast yet. But I think it's a really cool story of kind of like oh this is, you know, this is how it should end. Uh, did you have a similar sort of process with All Roads Lead to Lawrence? I did. I had uh, that epiphanal moment. Uh, and, and I have to say, we, you and I haven't talked in about two years or, or, or the last time we did a podcast. So it's almost to the day. Uh, I find that pretty interesting. Oh, yeah. So um, I'm starting to write a sequel. I don't have much of a story and lacking direction and in big trouble with it. And then I find myself uh, on a Sunday, driving up to a farmer's market up at the College of the Canyons, a little bit north of where I live. Coming back down the hill to come home on the Sunday, um, off the freeway is a place called Eden Memorial Cemetery Park, where my father's buried. He passed away in 2002. And uh, every now and then when I make that run, come back down the hill, I'd stop over and just sort of hang out with uh, with him a little bit there. Um, my wife usually comes with me, and she was under the weather. So I was on a solo trip. I pulled off, sat on the ground next to my dad's headstone and had this conversation with him both in my head and out loud. Uh, I had my hand resting on his headstone. And at the end of the conversation, I said, hey, dad, 
struggling with my story right now. If you hear anything from the hereafter, feel free to send it my way. <laughs> and I got up and got back in the car and started driving. And I was going westbound on a 118 freeway. And I started to get this idea. I don't know where it came from. Uh, about human consciousness not being tethered to the human brain. And uh, the further I drove from the closer I got to home, the more sharper into focus it came. And then that focus was shattered uh, by my wife calling me up on my cell phone and saying, hey, can you stop at the market on the way home and pick me up something? I'm not feeling well. So uh, pulled off the freeway, walked into what was a Whole Foods market. Not, this is not a plug, but they have this <laughs> juice bar where they make fresh things there. And I ordered her wellness shot. And when I walked into the store, it was Super Bowl Sunday and the place was a zoo. And uh, I just needed to get that drink and get out of there. There was a delay. I picked up a basket and threw some items from the hot food bar into the basket. Uh, everything randomly by weight. A drink came up. I went to the check stand to pay. Uh, the young lady in there who was uh, checking me out wanted all the items through and said to me, that'll be 1926. And uh, it, it was like I was hit by a lightning bolt in that moment because 1926 was the year my father was born. So crazy. <laughs> yeah, I got home, told my wife that story, and she started to cry. And, and so in some weird way, I, I think I received some validation that that story idea that was coming through to me after I asked the question, you know, it just might be real. So I basically uh, started to outline from there never stopped and then created a second book in pretty short order. Was the, uh, the overall time that you spent writing it less than, uh, this was never about basketball. About the same, about seven months in total for the first draft, uh, that happened on both books. All right. Very cool. Very cool. And, uh, I know when we've spoke before you kind of touched on, uh, the route of going uh, indie publishing as opposed to a traditional publisher. And one of the things that you mentioned to me that I, I guess I kind of knew, but I had never really considered just how long of a wait it is between your, you know, an agent saying, Oh, I like this, you know, let's get it published and to it actually being published. And it seemed like that was kind of a, a big reasoning for you to go a different route. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about, sort of that whole process and what, what that was like. Sure thing. Uh, I hadn't really thought about that, that part of it. I just started to write. And when I finished my manuscript, I started to investigate what my options were. And there were basically two of them. And the first one was find an agent who believed in it. That person would go ahead and find a publisher who believed in it. And then I would give up creative control and would have no um, say over the, the timing of anything. And in three to five years, if ever, that book would be on a bookshelf. And um, I'm just, you know, I'm not a young man anymore and I didn't not want to sit around and wait for that kind of period of time. So I elected to go after the self-publishing route where you can source an editorial team, a design team, and then hoist it up uh, at a couple of different places and get out there to the general public in a matter of just a handful of months. I like it. I like the, uh, the expedited route. That seems like the, the way to go. Yeah, that, you know, that it's your definition, one's definition of success is an important part in this decision. You know, if you're interested in being on a bestseller and selling millions of copies, then the self-publishing route is more challenging. Uh, my goal was just to get out a book that was as professional as it possibly could be, send it out to the, to the world, 
and hope for the best. And that's what I did on both of these books. Absolutely. And that leads nicely into, I think what can be just as, if not more challenging than the writing of a book is the marketing of it. And what sort of, uh, you know, tactics have you taken, uh, to try and get the the word out about the book besides obviously appearing on wonderful podcasts like this? Uh, there's a, there's a general rule about this process and that's that no one's going to care more about your book than you are. And so that is a way to guide yourself into spending your money correctly. On the first book, I, I, um, I put some money in some areas that didn't really give me any kind of return or at least nothing that was tangible. So uh, second time around, I'm older and wiser, and I am kind of doing surgical strike marketing. Uh, so that basically consists of grassroots efforts, social media, making appearances. Uh, I was at a book festival up in Hesperia, California uh, on Saturday, and this coming Saturday, I'm going to be at the local YMCA having a book release fundraiser, and all the proceeds are going to go to the Wise Scholarship Fund. So getting on Twitter, getting on Facebook. Uh, trying to reach librarians around the country and talking to independent bookstores. It's anything I can do to, to get the needle moving. So I'm just uh, one of the, one of the, there's an interdimensional energy being in both books called the seventh dimension. And the, so I channel that every time I get out of bed in the morning, I make a decision to do seven things to move the needle on this book every single day, seven days a week. Sounds tiring, but but worth it in the end. I really like the library strategy, um, which I think is easy to overlook because, you know, it might not lead to, to a huge amount of riches, but I think getting that many people to be reading your work is is so critical. And I mean, this is just my my opinion on this, but I think this would I would have loved to have read this book in high school or college or something like that. Like some of the stuff we read was just I mean, it wasn't it wasn't uh, keeping me awake, whereas whereas this one, I you know, I wanted to find out what was going to happen next. Oh yeah, thanks. Uh, I had a library system up in Central Washington pick it up, and one day I had this order for a whole bunch of books, and uh, I thought it was probably some sort of software error on the part of the tracking system. Uh, <laughs> I've, just, I've been fortunate that uh, it's getting some recognition, but libraries certainly are a way to put it into young readers' hands. And uh, I think that's probably, I would say, the number one goal is, is to just get it in the young readers' hands. There's a lot of lessons in both books, a lot of um, really powerful things for a young reader to know and to try to learn. And that's where I'm coming from when I write these. Awesome. I like that a lot. And one of the uh, initial chapters, it might even be the first chapter now that I'm thinking about it, um, involves uh, the play where it's kind of... You know, the play that the team's run so many times before works like a charm. And when I was reading that, it reminded me of uh, a buddy and I, shout out to Gullo from uh, the University of Miami. We would run this play at the start of every pickup game when we were on the same team. And it was very simple. You're starting a game at half court, you know, top of the key. Uh, And one of us who was taking the ball out would pass it to the other one who flashed up to the wing. And we just... It basic give and go right back to them and kind of stick our butt out. So we're setting a screen on uh, the person who was guarding, whoever passed it in. And this isn't exaggeration. I would say 90% of the time the shot went in. And I think it was just sort of that 
almost automatic uh, feeling of like, hey, this is the play we're going to do. We're going to start off up to nothing because we just made a three. Um, and I assume that you probably in your in your basketball days have had uh, a play that worked just as well like that. Well, uh, yours involves um, a lot more energy, <laughs> uh, a lot of movement of the ball. Uh, in, in my experience, my favorite play was always the stack out of bounds play when the ball goes out of bounds um, under your opponent's basket and you're taking it out right underneath the basket. And uh, there's this play where you line up four guys in front of each other. The person inbounding the ball smacks it with his hand and that cues everybody to in sequence move in a different direction. It's designed to uh, create some confusion and then it sets a back screen for one of the players for an easy layup. And I think it worked like, like yours did about 90% of the time. It is a thing of beauty when it happens correctly. It's nice to have those plays that just like always have a good success rate. I remember uh, playing uh, a a team that had uh, John Shire on it. If you remember him from the the Duke Glory days at the end of the two thousands, um, and they would run uh, essentially a backdoor uh, lob sort of play, and mm-hmm. we we knew this play was coming all the time. So there was one part where they threw the lob, and I was able to get up and just knock a a fingertip on it and knock it out of bounds. And one of their players sort of made a comment like, Oh, that's the first time that hasn't worked. And I felt so proud, even though we ultimately lost that game by 25 or 30 points. Um, so <laughs> what impresses me most is that you actually remember that play that vividly. Uh, when things happen on the basketball court as players, we never forget them. Uh, the important ones are with us forever. And it's one of the ways that we measure the world and those who are in our world. So uh, congrats on that. And you're going to remember that play for a long time. Have have it on good authority. Yes, I'm always, uh, I don't know if impressing or perhaps slightly freaking out uh, a friend of mine by bringing up just random, either random basketball plays I've been involved in or just witnessed, um, you know, whether like a, a random 13-4 upset from the, the 2006 March Madness or, you know, just something obscure like that, I... But yeah, I, I totally agree that you. There are those memories that you'll just always carry with you, and you remember, you know, different details like who else was in the game, just different celebrations on the court, and it's it's really. I, I don't think you can duplicate it with anything. Uh, I've raised a lot of eyebrows over the year when I tell people that basketball is the prism uh, through which I view the world. Uh, you learn so much about those that you're on the court with. Or how do they react under pressure? And, you know, what do they do when the game's on the line? And if it's a two-on-one, uh, do they take the shot? Do they pass it to you? It's all there uh, to be studied and, and to learn from. Absolutely. And I, uh, speaking of clutch shots, I I know in uh, your last book you said, I'm, I'm going to be wrong on the percentage, but in your, uh, in your author bio, you said that you're, I think, a 90% free throw shooter on your backyard hoop. Is that still the case? Uh, it's 87% actually. Okay. Uh, and of course, the important thing to remember here is that it's 100% unverified. <laughs> so I'm out there by myself shooting a lot of free throws. In times when the words come a little slowly, I'll go outside and shoot some. And then that rhythm that I achieve out there, I, I'm able to bring that into the house and then continue to write. I like that. I've never tried shooting free throws before writing, but I like that strategy a lot. It does get you into a good rhythm. 
I'm going to try that. I'm going to try that next time. Yeah, I can't recommend it uh, highly enough. Although you have the advantage of having an actual hoop in your backyard. I believe, if I recall correctly, right by a pool. So hopefully uh, you don't have to go diving in too often. Yeah, the volley is out there is an indoor-outdoor. So when it hits the pool on occasion, uh, you just have to dry it off. It doesn't take on the water. And then there's decisions to be made as the ball is making its way for the pool. You know, how much of a hero do you want to be <laughs> to try to keep it from going in? Uh, you know, that's a key um, key element out there in the yard. But I've got an ABA-sized backboard, three and a half by six feet, uh, and like a third-scale court back there. My wife arranged to have it built for me for my birthday about three and a half years ago. What a sweetheart. Yeah, that's a terrific birthday gift. I might, I, I might have to get in touch if I want to make that happen in my backyard just on the logistics and everything. I had a summit meeting out there with the landscape guy, the cement guy, and the, the pole guy. And the three of that, those guys talked it over, figured out the sequence of things, and it was a pretty well-choreographed dance number out there. It took about four or five weeks. At the conclusion of it, I chalked it up, and then a striping crew came out and striped it, and then I was ready to go. Nice, nice. That's... It's, I guess you never really think how much goes into the making of that, but I mean, it sounds like it's worked out very nicely and uh, you can get some, some good practice in. There are rumors going around that I actually um, hang the hoop at nine and three quarters feet and I actually tend to get myself <laughs> home court advantage. But uh, in my um, knowledge, those are completely unfounded. <laughs> yeah. Once again, you can't verify it. So we'll, we'll call it an eight. Right. <laughs> and I did want to, since this episode is coming out just around the start of the college basketball season, I admittedly have not been doing my due diligence on college hoops this year. So hopefully you have and can give some, uh, some insights, some predictions. How do you think the season's going to go? Well, I'm a fan of the PAC 12, but I also keep an eye on the big 12 as well. Uh, UCLA is my team out here and, uh, we've got a new coach, Mick Cronin, who came over from Cincinnati. Um, and everything I'm reading in the newspaper says that the team's moving in the right direction right now. Uh, the Pac-12 is usually pretty competitive. There's a lot of good basketball being played on the West Coast. Uh, tell me who your team is, Joey. Uh, well, as a graduate of the University of Miami, I always root for my Hurricanes, although last year was rough and uh, the year before was equally pretty. Uh, well, it ended Poorly, I actually got to see uh, them get upset at the buzzer by Loyola Chicago, who you may remember, reached the Final Four, um, and to the chagrin of some of the fans around me, who were not Miami fans, but saw I had my Miami shirt on, I actually picked them to lose that game, which uh, maybe will also cause some distress among my fellow Canes, but having watched the team play all season, I was like, this is the type of game they would lose, and lo and behold, they did. That's a questionable karma builder right there for you. <laughs> I know. But I figured like it, it's a win-win because either my team wins and I'm happy or the bracket stays intact. Well, at least that part of it, I think, by then. Maybe some of the other parts. Yeah. I like that. I like how fire. you're taking in the big picture right now. It's it's important. Exactly. Exactly. And last year, I, I, I did not replicate that same success. Of uh, I think it's, it's a rule if you start off really well. Like if your first day you've got 13 or 14 right and you're feeling good, you get a little cocky. And then uh, by the Sweet 16, you've got like all four Final Four teams eliminated already. I think it's a rule. 
Yeah, that's a rite of passage right there. Uh, my results have been similar. So do you see UCLA returning to glory? It's been a couple of years, right, since they've made the tournament, if I if I have that right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, boy, you know, I hope so. Wise man bet with head, not with heart. It's uh, always <laughs> been my motto. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I I went to every home game at Poly Pavilion from the year that it opened in 1965 until about 1974 when it became time to do some other things. So um, I was pretty spoiled. Um, I saw all of those victories, all of those national titles in that building. And uh, I don't know that they can ever return to that kind of glory. Uh, let's maybe try to win the Pac-12 tournament and see what kind of seed we get this year. Yeah, I like that. You got to have realistic goals. It's always, I always wonder, because I, I mean, I guess Miami kind of had this in football a little bit, but I've never really, you know, had a, a college team like that that was so dominant in back in the day and to to go from that to just like you know we're hoping for above 500 uh it's got to be it's got to be a little bit of a a wake-up call i guess yeah it's a different world now uh and it's a reminder of how those earlier days were were pretty incredible and special and unlikely to be duplicated again it was it was quite an era uh for the game especially here locally in la absolutely and as much as I love chanting basketball, could do it all day. I do want to get back to some writing, uh, which I think is a good way to, to segue into the top three. I, you've written two books now, which is, I would argue, more than most people have written. I would say most people probably haven't even written one. Um, but I know it's a, a common sort of goal for people of, hey, I'd, I'd love to publish a book. I'd love to write a book. I have this idea. I want to put it on the paper. But People might not know where to start. Uh, they might get off track once they once they get going with it. Many other things can can get in the way of that actually happening. So, as someone who's now published not one but two books, what are your top three writing tips for someone that would also like to do the same? Well, the first tip would be uh, buying a book, and this book in particular is called "Write a Novel and Get It Published." Uh, it's written by an Englishman named Nigel Watts. Uh, sometime, I believe, in the 1980s. He passed away in 1999. The publisher hired a gentleman named Stephen May to come in and write an updated version of it. And uh, when I was writing mine, I read uh, seven books on how to write a book, stru- plot and structure, dialogue, uh, this is every, everything you can think of. This is the last one that I read, and this guided me in. It's a concise text on how to approach it. Um, it's just really... Dead on, it talks about the eight-point story arc, which is a nice way to try to frame up your story. So I would recommend getting this book. That's number one. Um, I guess for the second one would be to tell everyone you know that you're writing a book. Every single person you know in your life, tell them. And uh, that way, you've got nowhere to run. You've got to finish it or you'll just look like a fool. <laughs> uh, it was it was a, a effective for me, part of my strategy. Um, and the, the third Third tip would be to hire or source a good editorial and design team and set a goal to produce a book that looks like it was published by one of the major publishing houses. Uh, if you're a self-published author, I think that is a noble goal to shoot for and uh, just have to go out there and, and source a good team. 
I like that. I just read the uh, the old saying of if you want to do it fast, do it alone. But if you want to, oh no, now I'm forgetting the final part of it. If you want to go far, get a team. Something something along those lines. Yeah, exactly. Uh, at the same time, I have to tell you that nothing ever happened fast enough for me with with uh, the team working on it because you know everyone's got a life and things are going on. Uh, so it, 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 it tests your patience from time to time. You want things to move and be completed. Uh, but if you have skilled people around you, then that tempers your enthusiasm, you know, for finishing it quickly. Yeah, I can imagine. And and now that two are in, are out on the shelves, is are we going to see a third third book in this series? Well, you know, my editor uh, Judy Gittenstein, she's in New York City. She told me when she read the second manuscript that this is a trilogy so again we had to go into the final chapter which i really had nailed down we had to leave a few things ajar leave a little bit of breathing room and i'm just now starting to outline the third story there's going to be uh let me say this some some ancient geometry playing a role and uh possibly some time travel all of it as it relates to basketball excellent is there a working title for this or does that come later in the process uh, currently, the working title is "This Was Always About Basketball," uh, and until something knocks it off, um, that's that's going to stick. I like it. I like it. Bringing it full circle. Yeah, exactly. You know, bookending bookending the the All Roads book. I like it. And Craig, you're almost off the hook. But if people want to get in touch with you, want to pick up a copy of either this was never about basketball or all roads lead to Lawrence. Where can they find you? Well, uh, easiest way would be at Craig leaner.com C R A I G L E E N E R.com uh, at Craig leaner on Twitter. Uh, the books are available anywhere books are sold. Uh, of course, Amazon is, is a good place to source it, but you can really walk into any independent bookstore and I encourage this and order it right there and it'll be delivered. So, that's the situation there. I appreciate you asking me that, Joey. Absolutely. I appreciate you saying to support your local bookstores because that's awesome. All right, Craig. Well, you are officially off the hook. Thank you so much for hopping on the podcast. And as always, we'll leave you with a joke. And let's make it a basketball one. Why was Cinderella thrown off the basketball team? She ran away from the ball. Hmm. (laughs) Get after it today, people. Oh my goodness, I didn't see that one coming. (laughs) I try to make the jokes topical, you know.